0: Jim Carrey, Canadian-born actor and double Globe, Golden Globe Award winner. I wish everyone could get rich and famous and, everyone's, and everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see that that's not the answer. I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that that's not the answer. If being rich and famous and Ace Ventura, the pet detective, is not the answer, are we really answering the, the right question? Ecclesiastes is the place to come in the Bible to look for answers, to see life as it really is, messy, hard to grasp, hard to figure out, confusing at times, disjointed, but still beautiful with cracks in there that seem to let the light in. It's a book with a preacher, a king, looking for answers, and the book is complex, repetitive, seemingly contradictory, infuriating and compelling all at once because that's kind of what life is like. So the preacher speaks about his life, um, not only of life in general, but his life and invites us into this experience so that it might resonate with us. And so in our passage this morning, and thank you for reading that long passage, um, Michael, we are invited into this search for answers. And the question was from last week's passage in verse uh, three of chapter one. What does man, what does any person gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the question. What does man, any person, gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun on this earth? And so this is his story. And because stories are verbal acts of hospitality, he welcomes us into this. So it's a long passage uh, this morning, so I'm not going to get through everything, but please do have it in front of you. Um, I've not been organized enough to have it all on the screen like usual. So if you have the Bible, um, then please do have that in, in front of you. I'll be referring to it. But to help us to navigate through it, I'm gonna split it up into four different sections, okay? So the first is the summary, second is the search, the third is the shadow, and the fourth is the surprise. So summary, search, shadow, and then surprise. First off, we get a summary in the first few verses. We are introduced to this preacher. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done in heaven. He makes it his aim, his whole heart's desire to carefully examine and investigate life. All that is done under heaven, quite ambitious, would be an understatement. He's answering the question posed in 1 verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And this is his answer summarised. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's a busy business busy business that we have. This is life more than 2,000 years ago, even before faxes or computers or MSN messenger or email or before like, you know, you could instantly contact people across the world. Life was a busy business. And he says this, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Perhaps he wouldn't be the first person that you'd speak to at a party. Um, (laughs) He speaks of this and repeats this. He definitely makes his point, doesn't he? He says that four or five times in this passage. Vanity, Hevel in the original. It's often translated as vanity or meaninglessness, but neither captures, as translation struggles to do in general, right? captures the exact um, nuance of this. It's more accurately translated as breath. That's what it literally is, breath. And I think that conveys what he's trying to convey here. When the preacher says that everything is breath, that life is breath, that all is breath, he's not saying that everything is meaningless or pointless. He's saying that everything is temporary, is transient, it evaporates, it slips away. Life is like a breath. Everything is a mist, a vapour, a puff of wind, a bit of smoke. Here, this second... and gone the next. All human abilities and achievements decay over time, are subjected to the decay of time. All human thoughts are fleeting, our lives are brief, and life is short. It's also elusive, like a striving after wind. Striving has a sense of shepherding, of bringing together. If you think the idea of shepherding a 100 sheep is daunting or five kids, my friend texted this morning, she's got three kids, and she said, um, I've got some news to tell you, we're expecting twins. And I was delighted for her. I also gulped deep in my heart for her as well. <laughs> shepherding kids, shepherding sheep is hard enough. Wait till you try and shepherd the wind. It's impossible. But it's worse than water slipping through your fingers, just as it's impossible to get the wind to go where you want it to. Ask our Australian friends who are being ravaged by wind that's bringing those bushfires all over the country, just as wind is impossible to control, so it's not possible to have life go exactly like how you want it, how I want it. And this is why he says and he repeats, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So that's a summary. And then we're taken to his experience, to his story. His life has been the illustration that he needs to show what he's been saying. We get to see his search, his search for answers. And so we find him in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in verse 16. He says this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And so he studies. He grows in wisdom. He studies philosophy, which literally means love of wisdom. His GPA is is as high as you can get. It's A-OK. It's 4.0. He not only studies philosophy, but he studies the opposites of sanity and wisdom. He's a very diligent student. He looks at it from all different angles to see what light they might shed on understanding And all combined to be striving after wind. The amount of times I've thought that my life's problems would be solved, I would become the great person that I was always destined to be once I finished this course or this book or latched onto this information or memorised this particular passage. Striving after the wind. It's elusive. It can't be caught. We think that education will solve all our societal problems but it's not quite true. He learns so much, and yet his heart aches like the man who knows nothing. Verse 18. We often say, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. But here he says, the more he knows, the sadder he actually becomes. For in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I know some of you here are studying philosophy. Um, I don't know if you will have heard of um, a guy called Herbert fingerett He's an existential philosopher. And he's the subject of a documentary uh, created by his grandson called Being 97. In his 1996 book about death, Herbert fingerett argued that fearing one's own demise was irrational. When you die, he wrote, there is nothing. Why should we fear the absence of being... Um, when we won't be there ourselves to suffer it. Kind of makes sense, right? Like if we're going to be nothing, well, what's there to fear? What's there to worry about? We won't know that we're nothing, so it should be okay. That was in 1996, but 20 years later, facing his own mortality, the philosopher realized that he'd been wrong. Death began to frighten him and he couldn't think himself out of it. Fingarett, who for 40 years taught philosophy at the University of California, at 97, wondered whether he'd been deceiving himself about the meaning of life and of death. He says this in the documentary, and it's done by his his grandson, who doesn't speak in it, but I think his grandson says at points he wants to reach out and to, to, to comfort him. As a documentarian, he let him speak. He says this, it haunts me, the idea of dying soon, whether there's a good enough reason or not. I walk around often and ask myself, what is the point of it all? There must be something I'm missing. I wish I knew. Like the preacher's search, it reached a dead end. Philosophy, wisdom, worldly wisdom only got him so far. And next then, we go from the university and we see this preacher live it up where the neon lights shine bright. He says... I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so he has laughter. He has wine. He has great works. He has new houses. He plants vineyards. He has gardens and parks. He does gardening and agriculture. Well, other people probably did it for him. And he has slaves. He has retail therapy. All that you'd want. Possessions of herds and flocks. Silver and gold and treasure. He has singers. He has sex. And so we can see that when he says... And whatever my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He really didn't hold back. We know how to party in the 21st century, but they also did as well. The kings of that time, in 1 Kings 4, I think it talks about a party that they had. And there was enough food for 15 to 20,000 people. And not only would they have um, a party for that day, they would have that over several days. Kings could have proper parties then. Not like the parties, the, 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 the brunches that I throw. These parties are proper parties. He maxes out on pleasure. He maxes out on projects. He maxes out on praise given to him. And yet how does he respond? Behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Philosophy didn't gain him wisdom. Parties didn't gain him worth. Pleasure didn't gain him wonder. He grabbed at these things, he grabbed at them and grasped at them, but actually it just ended up being nothing. He found what is called the paradox of pleasure. The more you hunt for pleasure, the less of it you find. Have you noticed that? C.S. Lewis describes this as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Man, that speaks so deeply to me. I know exactly what that feels like. I wonder if you do too. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So the next step in his journey after the summary and the search is this. He comes to a shadow. From verse 12, he says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, And verse 16, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. This great shadow of death looms large. He doesn't even mention it in that early passage. As the preacher considers wisdom and folly, death is the great leveller. Whether it's Queen Elizabeth or Emperor Nero or Dr. Seuss or Mr. Bean, whether it's commander of the army or it's Colonel Sanders of KFC, death is one of those things that makes life feel like breath. It makes life temporary, transient and short. What makes wisdom a vaporous pursuit is the fact that both fools and wise die in the same way. If I'm wise all my life and I build on my life, it might just go to someone who's foolish and who might waste it away and drink it away. There is an advantage for wisdom, but wisdom does not help anyone escape this ultimate end. Verse 18 then says this, I hated all my toil which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Death is what is what makes accumulation of wealth like breath and vapour. <sighs> While our achievements may continue on after our death, the question is this, what good is it? What good does it do after you die? Herman Melville had enjoyed a bit of fame in his youth, but he was so completely forgotten in his later years that when his obituary appeared in the paper, everyone was surprised that he was still alive. Decades later, his work, he had written Moby Dick, was recognised as the great book that it was. But what good did that do him? He was already dead. We read of painters and artists who have worked their whole life to kind of gain a a tiny bit of recognition, but no one recognises them in their own life. And afterwards, almost in a mocking way, right, they get acclaim, they get the the recognition that they um, had been looking for. The merest of breaths, everything is but a breath. What if the sum of our lives, the gain of our lives, the aim of our lives to accumulate wisdom and wealth are just like sandcastles, as the tide comes in, are like snowmen as the warm rain melts it. Piles of leaves that we've collected just as the wind comes and blows them away. How are you feeling? What a great first uh, sermon to do, right? You're seeing the the laugh a minute nature that I I obviously exude. (laughs) Who said Scottish people were dour? I mean, come on. The Preacher King sees this as grievous, as evil, as despairing, as sorrowful, as a great evil. It makes him hate life. He says that a couple of times, right? This is what it means to live under the shadow of unavoidable death. And so so the single question that, that he asks and animates him is this. If we won't live forever or even long enough to make a lasting difference to the world, how then should we live? How then should we live? Well, one option is to do what the preacher's first default is, which is to hate life, to despair, to drown in sorrow, to grieve the inevitability of death. But that's quite costly. Verse 23, it says, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. It's depressing. It's anxiety-inducing, staring down the barrel of death. If there's no gain that's possible, then why bother with anything? And so the second option is this, to try and escape from reality. To hide from these sort of considerations, these contradictions. And um, I think in this day and age, we do it with distractions. We become endlessly distracted. And Peter Kreeft, a Christian philosopher, says it looks like this. If you're a typical modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. You find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. Cover it with a million mice. Multiple diversions. Isn't that a powerful picture? A million mice. When described like that, it's almost as terrifying as the rhino. I wonder what are your go-to mice? So this is why it is critical that we have not just hating life or escaping life, we have another option. And this is our final point, the surprise. Death can be seen as a framing reality for good. Perhaps death can be a framing reality for our good. The final twist, a shaft of light in this gloomy passage, and it is only a little shaft, right? Is this, is a surprise in the shadow. Uh, David Gibson in his commentary called Living Life Backwards, Living Life Backwards, how Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in light of the end, describes it like this. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. Encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives, and to think about them from the perspective of the end. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions and our strongest desires. And living life backward then, death is to shape how we live now. Life is not to be hated or escaped from, and neither is death, but today, is to be received as a gift of God. Verse 24 of chapter 2. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Such a gloomy passage and suddenly God is mentioned in quickfire succession three times. It's almost as if, He comes into the scene. What do we do with gifts? What do we do with gifts from God? We have gratitude. We say thank you. We delight in the giver and we delight in these gifts. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, at first glance, this seems a bit contradictory to all that's been said before. It feels like resignation, doesn't it? Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die and this is all there is. No, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it should be eat, drink and be merry because that is what has been given from his hand. The good things of this world are from a good creator. Simple everyday things are to be received as a gift from God's hand. Eating and drinking and working, the good things of this world are connected to the hand of God. They are good and they can be enjoyed. And they are to be enjoyed, not merely used for our own purposes to make ourselves big or to make a name for ourselves or to make ourselves feel important, but to actually enjoy them for themselves because they point us to God. And so wisdom, pleasure, work, eating and drinking on their own cannot give us meaning. They cannot make us feel valuable. They cannot bear the weight of giving us an identity on their own, disconnected from God, they become idols. They become things that are too important to us. They are good things that have become God things in our lives. And they're not meant to be God things. They can only bear the weight of being good. They can't be God for us. But when we see God's good gifts to us, As those things, they can be shafts of glory that become channels of adoration. As there's pleasure, as we taste that cup of coffee, as we see the beautiful creation, we look up that shaft that it brings for it to be a channel of adoration. How good must God be if this is just a a tiny little taste of what he's capable of, of what he delights in, of what he's able to do? They lead us up the ray of light to worship the source of that light. And so, taking the preacher's example, seeking pleasure for its own sake. Pleasure, although sensational for a moment, whether wine or sex or opening a new box of goodies, ends up being empty and self-centered and short-lived when it's actually not connected to God. Have you noticed why it's so easy for Apple to sell another device with another cable that we need to buy that doesn't fit into the old cable and that we need to get a new one. It's so easy for them because we think that when we open it, it's bright and it's shiny and it's white and it's so smooth. But it's not meant to do that, right? But connected to God, that pleasure can lead to praise. And that leads to us being people who actually please God. Did you notice that in the passage? Isn't that crazy? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Not only does God gift us with pleasure as good gifts, he actually makes it possible for you and for me to be a person who pleases him, who accepts those good gifts and who returns praise and glory back to him. To those he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. It just sneaks in there, doesn't it? That word joy. He gives these things because they have the right perspective on themselves and on him. And so at the end of this quest for meaning and happiness and answers, this preacher king begins to see where it comes from. Not from his own striving or gathering or collecting. Doing it himself. But actually as a gift from God's hand. Instead of grasping and grabbing at everything, hoping that it was gonna give some identity or meaning or purpose in life, he actually just opens his hands. So where does that leave us? Well, I started with a quote from a Canadian. Let me indulge by finishing with a quote from an Australian pretending to be a Scotsman. In the film Braveheart, the Scots are rallied into fighting are rallied into fighting their English oppressors by William Wallace, who says this, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. What a great quote, right? Come on, I mean, I know that I would do that. That certainly won't be my last ever Braveheart reference up here, just so you know. You'll be glad to hear that. But listen, everybody dies, but everyone really lives. So a couple of questions for us. To close. Are you ready to die? I know you're thinking, wow, Lloyd, are you really going there? <laughs> of course I am. I've got the microphone. It's even tucked under my shirt and everything. You cannot grab it. <laughs> I hope you'll see that this point at uh, this point is not a dark question, but one that shines a quick, bright light. It startles, but it's actually intended to reorientate us one of my best friends at university, both of us became Christians at university. He was from a non-Christian background and I was from a Christian background. But we had a phrase that we said to each other that I now see put things in a quite helpful perspective. We asked each other, are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? Not to class or to the shops to get another pack of Boston creams like we used to do. Are you ready to go from this life? Most of the time we said, yes, I'm ready to go. We were like 18 at the time, so we didn't have a lot to give up on. But it was true, something had happened to us. Jesus, the greatest preacher and the ultimate king, he had grabbed hold of our lives. He had convinced us that he was God incarnate. He came into human existence, knew what it meant to be fully human, and in dying and rising from the dead, could be trusted to tell us what it meant to die and what it meant to live after death. The crazy claim that he made And it is quite crazy, if you're new here today, is this, that he died an extraordinary death where he also died my death, but actually came back from that, not just to tell us about it, but to reassure us that there was life after death, but also that his resurrection life could be given to to, to me and to you. So I was ready to go. These days, I, I think about it a bit less, I think, this week of preparation has been uh, making me think a bit more about it how would I answer that question are you ready to go Lloyd well I think I would say yeah I I think so but I've just had a little girl she's like eight weeks old and um, this new thing has happened with St Peter's and the football team I support is just about to win the league for the first (laughs) time in in 30 years 30 years they're on course to win it like I I think so what if those things were were gifts? What if those things are not for me to grab hold of, thinking that it's going to make me happy because I'm already—I've been waiting for so long for that league title. I'm beginning to wonder if I'm going to like football after this, right? right? Like it can't hold my my the meaning in my life. Am I ready to go? Are you ready to go? I hope you won't mind me getting even more personal. Um, I have been wondering whether to share this or not. I, I hope that you'll, you'll understand that. It's, I think it's helpful in, in demonstrating this point. I've realised that death has framed a lot of the fears in my life. From my little brother dying when he was three months old to one of my best friends dying in a climbing accident when we were 18. My dad died last summer. And uh, one of the very hardest parts of that time was that he wasn't ready to go. Now, I, want to, I don't want to dishonour him in this and, I, and I'm sure he would um, yeah, be okay with me sharing some of this in order to illustrate this. One of the hardest parts was that he wasn't ready to go. He was a procrastinator, you see, that I've got that wonderful gift from him. But he spent much of his life trying to sort out a building project on the farmland where his family used to farm in Hong Kong. He wanted it to be a legacy to me, my brother, and uh, my cousins, Um to be remembered as something that he had given them. And there were lots of obstacles to it over the years, some outside of his control, some that that we made decisions on. And so when we were told he had cancer, that they couldn't find the primary source and that it spread to different parts of his body that he only had months to live, he was desperate to get back to Hong Kong to, to, to sort things out, to make a bit of headway in what he had lived his life to try and achieve in these latter years. He stayed for a few treatments in Glasgow, but after them, he was so sick and in such pain that there was no way he could get on an 11 hour flight to Hong Kong. But he wanted to, he needed to, like for his, 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 his desire, his, his grabbing at things, he wanted to get there to finish things. And he wasn't ready to go. And that was one of the hardest parts of spending the last even few weeks with him. The project that he had worked on for many of his last years was not complete. It was not gonna be completed even though we were telling him, it's okay, Dad, we don't need this from you to know that you've loved us all your life, that you've given all that you've had to us. What he had given himself to in his life, he was not able to give up in his death. What he had tried to grab in this life, he grabbed tighter at the end of his life. But it was like striving after the wind. As sad as it is to say that, like grabbing onto air, in his last days, he realized that life was like breath. His plans, his hopes, he wasn't going to see it. I think this is why Jesus calls us to carry our cross daily, like it says in the absolution, right? Because to metaphorically die to our false selves every day means that when the time comes to actually die, we're going to be ready to go. So when our physical death comes we are ready because we've already died a thousand times to all those false hopes in here, the empty promises in our lives we'll have died to them already, we'll be able to be ready to go. So friends, are you ready to go? There's a lot of young people, there's a lot of less young people. What do you need to see from the perspective of the end? What if you don't stop grabbing now we will be grabbing on to you until your final days, until you're raw to the bone, clinging on for dear life. What is important, but too important for you right now that you and I need to surrender and receive back as gift, to let go of and say, God, this is yours. Are you ready to die? Finally, are you ready to truly live? Life is short of breath and we can't catch it like we'd like or control it like we'd like to think. So don't grab at it in desperation. But let's open our grasps to the good giver who gives life as a gift and good gifts as part of life to be enjoyed. Maybe some of you need that, to hear that. You've not been allowed to enjoy things in life. You're meant to do stuff because you're meant to do stuff because you need to earn stuff because you need to prove stuff. What would it like, would look like for you to connect every earthly pleasure here to this heavenly giver? There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? What would it look like for you to truly live where you are in your setting and where you live in your work and your studies? To live with attention noticing things, seeing things as pointing to a, a good giver. To live with gratitude. To be at awe when the sun comes up again or when the snow just glitters the, the mountains. That Yeah, life is not perfect in this post-Eden world. But life could be a lot worse, right? Sometimes we think, how can life be like this? But... Other times we need to say, isn't it wonderful that life is like this? What would it look like for you to live with hope? Martin Luther, Martin Luther is said to have said, if I knew that tomorrow the world was going to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. That's only possible if we see a story beyond this life, a story beyond what goes on here. All is vanity, a striving after wind. From one perspective, nothing matters if this is all that there is. But in another perspective, everything matters if this is what there is. Because all that is can be seen as coming from God's hand. So what might it look like for you to truly live? Let me finish with some selected parts of a Wendell Berry poem. I wish I could read it all, but our time is short. It's a poem called Manifesto. Let me read it to you, just parts of it as a way to kind of stimulate something in you about what it might mean for you to to truly live in this world. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful though you have considered all the facts. Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in their lap. Practice resurrection.